Welcome to the Post at Pums podcast, presented by Emsa Pums International Chapter. Welcome back to the Pulse at Pumas podcast. My name is Michael, and I will be your host today. This podcast focuses on the journey of pursuing residency in the United States as international medical graduates. Today, our guest is Professor Gonsorovsky. He is a thoracic surgeon and the director of Medical Simulation Center here at Pumas. Professor Gonsorovsky did his general surgery residency at North Dakota University. Then he came back to Poland to complete his training in thoracic surgery. In this episode, he talks about his journey through the U.S. system and back, what made him choose thoracic surgery, and at the end, he explains the importance of medical simulation in medical education. We started our conversation with how he started his journey from Pumas to North Dakota. I actually finished my medical school in uh, Poznan, is the non-English speaking department because there was actually the time that. Uh, the English-speaking division was its uh, in its infancy, was just starting, and uh, right after this, I decided I wanna get some training abroad, and my choice was to go to the U.S. As uh, I strongly believe, U.S. has the best uh, healthcare system, and we're probably gonna talk about this later not to be mixed with uh, health insurance system. And uh, that's why I decided to um, apply for a general surgery residency in the US. And uh, it wasn't easy. I actually had to take uh, USMLE uh, tests, which one of those I actually failed. Uh, and I decided I'm just going to do it again. And it's probably better because I, I got a better score. Uh, at that time, it, the USMLE, believe it or not, was still on paper. And it was actually held in Warsaw. The, the results took uh, several weeks uh, to, uh, to get back. So then I uh, matched into a, a general surgery in the US. This was at the University of North Dakota. So this is something I really never heard of, except uh, my late father actually was in the 70s in North Dakota doing his research uh, in uh, cereal. So he was a professor at the University of Agriculture and uh, he was there in the 70s, so that was a funny uh, coincidence. Uh, I did my general surgery residency, and then I decided to uh, go back to Poland, uh, and I did my thoracic surgery fellowship here uh, in Poznan at Pumps. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what is thoracic surgery? Thoracic surgery in worldwide is actually very frequently uh, combined with cardiac surgery. And in fact, in the States, it's called uh, cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, So basically cardiac surgery uh, has to do with uh, 
surgical disease of the heart. And uh, thoracic surgery has to do with uh, uh, surgical diseases of the lungs and uh, mediastinum and esophagus. So actually uh, in Poland is uh, this special, those two specialties are entirely uh, separate. Whereas in the US it's still uh, one specialty, although they actually have to tend, uh, they tend to have a separate, so-called separate tracks. Uh, so there is a cardiothoracic surgery with the thoracic surgery track and uh, cardiac surgery with the adult cardiac or uh, cardiothoracic surgery with the congenital uh, cardiac uh, surgery track. And this is something that, uh, in my opinion, after those years, thoracic surgery and cardiac surgery is, is an entirely uh, different specialty. You deal with other people uh, in thoracic surgery. You mostly deal with uh, surgical oncology of the chest. So you have... Uh, cooperation with uh, pulmonary medicine specialists, and you have cooperation with uh, pulmonary oncologists. Whereas as being cardiac surgeon, you hardly ever see an oncologist, but you, you're 95 or 99% of your uh, referral base will be uh, just cardiologists. Can you tell us a little bit about how you picked a specialty? Basically, uh, in the U.S., with, with few exceptions, you cannot do cardiothoracic surgery uh, fellowship without uh, prior uh, general surgery residence. And I just mentioned there are exceptions. Yes, there are like combined uh, general sur surgery slash cardiothoracic surgery uh, residences, which usually take uh, six years, uh, so it's one uh, year shorter than uh, combining uh, general surgery, which is at least five years, and thoracic cardiothoracic surgery uh, fellowship, which is two years. So we actually gain one year before you, so you can enter as an independent practice. And uh, uh, in my personal situation there was a little bit of coincidence and finding the niche was actually happened because um, in 1995 when I was about to finish my medical school they just opened a brand new thoracic surgery department uh, in uh, Poznan. So I, so I actually just went there to see how it looks like and uh, uh, I saw I liked it and I thought I could be doing this uh, for my entire career. And this is so I, may, so I kind of mainly s stick to it. And uh, I think thoracic surgery is, has to do a lot of with oncology. In my personal opinion, it's, uh, it's, a good, uh, it's a good thing. What are some of the challenges that you face when you train as an IMG in the US? I think first of all, it's very difficult to get into the system just because you have to compete with other graduates of U.S. medical schools. In my case, I actually, before I obtained the residency spot, 
I actually went to University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin for uh, six months of, uh, they called it visiting residency. Or I was basically there as a volunteer for six months. And basically I got to learn the U.S. healthcare system, how things work in hospitals. And I was able to obtain fairly good uh, letters of recommendation from uh, top uh, surgeons there. And I think this was one of the uh, things that actually uh, got me into the residency because they, uh, the program director at the uh, University of North Dakota, he actually personally knew Dr. Rickers. Dr. Rickers, now he's a professor emeritus, but at that time he was a uh, chair of the Department of General Surgery at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I think this kind of personal contact greatly improved my chances into getting into uh, surgical surgery residence. And again, as surprisingly it might sound right now, there was no ERAS. In fact, my year that I got into the residency, which was 2001, uh, was the first year of ERAS. So everybody was, uh, you know, kind of perplexed. They didn't know what, what, what ERAS is. And as you know, and I think it's still the case, you have to pay for the uh, each application above, you know, a certain limit. So uh, before the year, everybody was sending applications everywhere because uh, it was just cheap. All it costed you was just the cost of, uh, of the postage stamp. So uh, at that time, residences would get like 600 applications, so they would automatically throw things into uh, the uh, garbage. <laughs> and that time, in the first year of ERAS, the number of applications was substantially uh, lower. So this is probably, again, one of the things that allowed me to get into the uh, surgical residence. That's, uh, that's actually very interesting, uh, but unfortunately now it's back to the um, 600,000 applicants per department um, situation now. There's a lot of competition right now, especially for IMG students. Can you talk about the main differences between postgraduate medical education in the U.S. versus in Poland? Yes, I was actually very surprised how different it is, and I think they give much more responsibility to the resident than they do it here uh, in Poland. So for instance, I will never forget this. On my first day of residency, I was kind of running around the hospital, which you know I've never seen before. And you know, they I went to the OR and they were doing a emergency appendectomy. And they actually asked me, Well, how many appendectomies have you done? I said, Well, you know, actually I've done none. And the surgeon, Dr. Kirihara, said okay well today today is going to be your first one and i was like wow that's just my first of the day of the residency so you know everybody was extremely nice and you know he actually took a sterile uh, marking pen and he draw a line on the skin of the anesthetized patient and said okay look cut here so just cut, I did the incision and I just did the surgery, you know, with obviously his help, you know, on my first day of uh, residence. There are actually a lot of disadvantages of the U.S. residency system. And one of those is that being overworked. And if I mean overworked, I mean really 
overworked. I remember my first three years were actually before the era of work hour regulations. And I remember first year was just terrible. I mean, I just literally didn't leave hospital. And I remember I was getting a loan for a car in a bank and I went there with a resident and you know the bank clerk asked me, okay, how many hours do you work a week? And I said, well, last week was actually 118. And she looked at me like I didn't understand. And she said, no, 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 I mean a week. And the resident that was with me, she said, actually, yes, that, this, this is what he worked last week. And she was like, wow. So I remember being on call when probably I was able to rest for like 30 minutes for entire nights. And then you, you would have a regular day, which wouldn't finish at five. And I remember kind of standing, standing on the hospital corridor trying to you know, maintain balance because I was so tired. And it was 7 p.m. and I was post-call being up all night. And my chief resident, who wasn't the nicest person, at, the, at least at that point, he was asking me, look, are you on call uh, tonight? And I said, no, I was on call last night. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So I just remember as a tremendous effort and not being able to sleep, you know, at home rest. And I remember I recorded the uh, earliest time that I had to round on the patients, on the patients on the floor before the uh, chief resident. It was actually three for 45 in the morning that I start, started around. So it was very, very early. But overall, I think the residency system in the US is superior to uh, the one here in Europe because you get much more experience. And as you progress, you get to operate more and more. So I'm def I definitely think it's a better system. Now I want to ask you about your current um, career. What, what is a typical day like for you or maybe a typical week? Yeah, I'll talk about more about typical week because I have a lot of responsibilities. Uh, I'm also a professor of the Department of Me uh, Medical Simulation. Uh, so, for instance, I fr on Fridays, I have uh, administrative day, which I just come to the Medical si Simulation Center and I have stuff to, I have time to do administration stuff and, you know, do other things. Otherwise, when I come to hospital, a typical day, would look that I do rounds probably around 7 a.m. Uh, then we have a, a clinical meeting at 7.30, which usually is until uh, 8.30. And then we usually start uh, OR cases around that time. And again, depends on the day, because if I do not have an OR day, I go to the clinic or I go to a endoscopy suite and I do uh, minimally invasive uh, procedures there. Uh, however, another day may actually start with the MDT. MDT is a, a multidisciplinary uh, tumor board, and we actually uh, gather twice a week at 7 a.m. and we sit and talk about different patients, what is the best treatment modality for, for them. So then after surgeries, going back to my regular day, I come to the floor or to the ward, and then I see new patients that are admitted under my name, and I just uh, 
examine them and trying to figure out the plan, what to do with them. And uh, usually the day should be over by 5 p.m. here. So it's not too bad. In the meantime, I can have medical students that I do teaching that I enjoy enormously. Pre-COVID times, they would come to the department and we would just do rounds together. In uh, COVID times, I just have to sit on the computer, turn MS Teams on and just, you know, keep talking and sharing screens, which is much more painful than, you know, on-site training. What's call like for you? Do you have a call schedule? I do. It's very sparse. I actually have just one or two calls uh, a month. And this is kind of a privilege that I kind of gain over years. I used to have, well, in the States as a resident, it would be every other day. Or when I came back here, it would be roughly six to seven calls a month. So usually a call day, uh, and this is much better in thoracic surgery, because you hardly ever get any emergency cases. Uh, I do get them. I actually remember a gunshot wound being admitted to our department. Um, that happened just a few years ago here in uh, Yezhitsa district, so very close to uh, where is the uh, department. And there was a guy that was shot with the uh, BB gun and he, the bullet actually uh, it got impacted in between the uh, pulmonary artery and uh, the, the aorta. Then, you know, those things, fortunately, in Poland don't happen too often. But I can have any, you know, emergency admits with any complications after surgeries that we did. I talk to the patient that's going to go to the operating room on the next day. So, the call is not really very busy uh, with you know emergency staff, but you have a lot of unfortunately scut work or bureaucracy to do, which you have to put all the blood types and blood groups. And in our system, residents don't do that; it's just the doctor uh, who's on call does it in in the evening. I see. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the medical simulation department you mentioned earlier? Yeah, the Medical Simulation Center, actually, Medical Simulation started in uh, 2010 in the uh, Collegium Stomatologicum when we opened a, a first uh, Medical Simulation Center. And idea actually came from the U.S. And uh, I have to mention Dr. Mike Chikaiwo, who's also an alumni of PAMS uh, 2001. He's a professor of anesthesiology in Richmond, Virginia. He actually uh, got a, a Fulbright scholarship and he helped tremendously in setting up medical simulation center because in reality, we did not know what a medical simulation center means and what it was because when you were thinking medical simulation, well, everybody was just th thinking about CPR dummies, which basically does not have to do anything with uh, medical simulation. So. Together with Mike, we actually created entire idea of simulation with uh, debriefing rooms and AV uh, debriefing systems and patient simulators. Patient simulators are just mannequins that can mimic any physiological and pathological uh, abnormalities and students have to work on that uh, in 
a secure environment. Uh, what I mean by a secure environment, that means, well, if the dummy dies, he's gonna be okay. Although you'd be surprised to, to know how many students I've seen crying after the death of the mannequin. So I always say, well, the plastic is artificial, but the emotions are real. Um, how can students utilize this resource? So basically, uh, since 2010, we've been introducing and expanding um, medical simulation at PUMS. And um, just to give you a comparison, uh, in 2010, there was just two clinical instructors. It was just uh, Dr. Chikaiwa and myself. And we had uh, one staff for Medical Simulation Center. Uh, and we just had 280 students that came uh, through our department. So last year, uh, which is a little bit unusual because it was a COVID year, but basically at this point we have uh, 140 instructors. We have eight staff that is uh, employed in the medical simulation center, and we have almost 4,500 students uh, from three different faculties going through the uh, uh, medical simulation center. So we actually have been introducing in more and more um, clinical subjects and. Uh, um, I really have to mention. Uh, um, I really have to mention a, a branch of uh, uh, SP, which is a simulated patients, which are actors that are employed to interact with students. And it's it's so uh, funny because we actually pay them, and a lot of people, you know, of kind of let's say more experienced instructors or well, uh, they're asking us, well, if you have a real patients which are for free. Why do you want to pay uh, an actor? Well, the answer is very simple because if I have a, let's say, interesting uh, patient, I would have to keep him in my flora forever. So he never leaves, but you know, they actually come and leave. So whenever medical students come, uh, I can only use the resources that I have. So if I do not have a patient with uh, symptoms of pneumothorax, I'm not gonna be able to show uh, a case of a pneumothorax. But if I do have a, um, an actor that is perfectly trained and really you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the real actor, I mean real patient and the actor, and he can portray those symptoms, uh, the educational goal and educational gain is even better than uh, with uh, real patients. That's actually a very interesting point that you brought up about being able to reproduce uh, clinical symptoms, the same, I guess, pathology over and over again with these uh, syndromized patients. Remember that even within our own class, if you're in different groups, sometimes even when you see the same patient, but just because it's only a day apart, um, we see very, very different symptoms and presentation. Mm -hmm. um, as a professor, as a mentor, what qualities do you look for when you're evaluating medical students? So I look basically at attitude and uh, I really like, I'm very passionate about teaching and I'm very passionate about medicine and I look kind of the same in uh, medical students and uh, they should be very open-minded, being eager 
to you know uh, do a lot of things because you know as a medical student you really don't know what you're going to be doing you know after you're done with your uh, medical school so uh, my opinion you should be open to all uh, open to all options because it doesn't mean everybody's going to stay a thoracic surgeon for obvious reasons but this is something that you, you actually can use your knowledge and the skills that you get uh, in my rotation in the future. The same thing goes for uh, medical simulation. We, with uh, emergency medicine class, we do a lot of uh, various scenarios. And uh, uh, if a student makes a difference, uh, makes an error in management, it's okay because he or she is gonna hurt no one but hopefully uh, she or he will learn from the mistake that was done. There is a big hope that the medical student does not repeat the same mistake again in real life. Do you have any specific advice for students who want to pursue residency in the U.S.? Well, I think first of all, um, it may have changed over time, but basically I think it's important to have per personal networking. So it's so much better if you're not an anonymous uh, applicant, which as you mentioned, maybe uh, number 598, and you know, they never heard you about you. Uh, so uh, if you make a plan, maybe try to get an elective there and hopefully they like you and they will see your attitude, your teamwork, and uh, you will stand out from the rest of uh, applicants. And unfortunately, which I'm not very, not very happy about, but the scores on the uh, exams are also very difficult and important. Uh, I know that USMLE is changing its formula into pass or fail, and I'm not sure if it's going to be better or worse, but you have to be aware that those things are changing. That concludes our conversation with Professor Gonsharovsky, the thoracic surgeon and director of Medical Simulation Center here at PUMS. Hopefully his story gives you some insight in the field of thoracic surgery. If you want to learn more about thoracic surgery, check out the American Association of Thoracic Surgery at aatc.org. If you're interested in medical simulation, I highly recommended our very own EPSU Medical Simulation Club. You can find them on Facebook or Instagram. Lastly, make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud and follow Pooms AMSA on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time here on the Pulse at Pooms.